Well, good to have you. Good to be here uh, today, church, and really excited to be, um, and and really privileged to be speaking from the Word today as we look at Psalm 51. Uh, but I'm going to start with a story, and the story has something to do with the introduction to this psalm, the, the direction for the uh, director of music. It starts like this. It was a fine spring evening. Everything seemed okay, and David was having a bit of trouble falling asleep. So he got up out of his bed, walked to the rooftop, and was just enjoying things. The last few years, you know, it had been hard. He'd been persecuted. He'd been chased by King Saul all over the place, you know, in in caves. He was hiding in caves. He was out in open fields. People were trying to kill him. And somehow, thanks be to God, he had survived. And even after King Saul had died, there was still a lot of pressure because there were people still trying to wrestle the kingship away from him. And there were other nations that were trying to fight against him as well. So things were really, really hard. But it seems like now on this rooftop, as he was having a bit of trouble falling asleep, it seems like everything was fine. And this God that he had been trusting in, this God that had kept him safe, all of this time, was perhaps fulfilling this promise that he had given him, this promise of rest that he would have on every side. And it felt like he was having a bit of rest now. His army was out fighting in a battle, and he was able to enjoy some peace and quiet. But all of a sudden, he didn't mean to to do this. He didn't mean to see, but out in the distance was a woman bathing. And all of a sudden, his peace was shattered, and the seed of sin was sown in his heart. He was thinking, he knew, he knew it would be wrong to to act upon the desires of his heart. Um, But, and he knew what would have happened. He, He saw what happened with King Saul too. But there was this little voice in his head, this little voice inside that said, oh, King David, you've done so well. You've you know, you've, you've been so faithful to God and things have been so good. You know, maybe if you, oh, if you just act on this desire in your heart, you'll be okay. You, you deserve this, don't you? You know, a small sexual indiscretion won't be too bad. And so King David, he was a bit swayed. He was thinking, oh, I shouldn't do this. I shouldn't do this. But he still sent people out to see who this woman was. And when he found out the news, things got worse. This this was a married woman. This was Bathsheba. And she was the wife to Uriah, one of his mighty warriors, who was out there fighting in a battle right now. What was he thinking about doing? He was thinking about committing adultery with her. But that, that voice in his head, it spoke up again. It said, David, David, it's okay. You deserve this. You know, it's, it's okay. You, you've worked so hard. You just sin now and be faithful later. And so, as we, as we know, the rest is history. King David, he committed adultery with this woman. And in an attempt to cover it up, he committed murder as well by staging a battlefield accident. It's terrible. And if we think about it, it's... How could someone so faithful as King David, who had followed God all of these years, who had 
spoken with God, who had heard from God, still commit such a terrible, terrible sin. And if, if David sins so greatly, then what hope is there for us? And so as we approach Psalm 51 today, and as we approach this prayer, this raw, raw prayer from David, let us see what we can learn about how we can struggle against sin, but more importantly, what hope and what joy we can have as we turn back to God. And so, yeah, please join me as we, as we pray now. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you today from many situations with a different awareness of the weight of our sin. May you lift this burden off us as we behold you. And may you help us to see what great hope we have in you. May you open our hearts to your word now and let it dwell richly in our very soul. We pray this through the name of our great hope, your son Jesus. Amen. Well, in today's psalm, the author, so originally David, with some later revisions, he takes us on a journey of confession and a journey of repentance, turning back from his sin. So let's take part in this journey now as we go through this psalm and, and learn what we, can, what we can learn about how we can confess our sin, but more importantly, how we can hope again in God, no matter what sin we have committed. And so it starts with point one, confessing our sin. Now the psalm begins like this. Uh, it says in verse one, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Notice here how David begins his prayer to God. Well, naturally, if I was thinking how I would pray to God, it might go something like this, using the words from the psalm. It might go, O God, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. But that's not how David begins his prayer. What, what's the difference between these two and why might this matter? bit early, but I think this is a really good point to pause and maybe just chat with your neighbour. Uh, what is the difference between these approaches and, and why does David begin this way? I'll give you 30 seconds. might not be enough, but 30 seconds. Chat with your neighbour. bit of quiet chatter. Um, hopefully that was, I know it wasn't a lot of time, but I'm wondering what you guys thought, think the difference is between these two approaches. Um, anyone willing to share their thoughts? Yep. David addresses God's character. Yep. Yep, Jess. acknowledges he doesn't deserve it. Yep. Yep. Any, anyone else? Why might David begin this way? Yep. So, two very different approaches, 
And I think those are really good answers that, that are getting us to think. But, and I think they, they do come into this. Uh, and I think um, both of them, we, we, we can see that there is some sort of focus on God. But the way that David begins this psalm, the way that he begins with this, um, we can see that he's actually directing attention away from himself and towards God. It's not firstly about him, and it's all about God. Well, first, as we see in this psalm, he admits that there's nothing that he can do, and he recognizes God's position over him and pleads for his mercy. And the second thing he does is he appeals to God's character, specifically, as we've read, his great compassion uh, and his unfailing love. And so for, focusing first on God, David doesn't wallow in his self-pity. Uh, you know, he begins to turn back to God. And this reveals the aim that we should all have when we confess our sin, to be fully reconciled to God, to know that we can be right again with God. And so this helps us to put what David says next in the psalm into context. So from verses 3 to 6, we're going to go through slowly and we'll see uh, a few things, a few key truths about how we can confess our sin. First one, in verse 3, First and most obviously, David shows that he's aware of his own sin. He knows what he has done, and he knows how bad it is. And so likewise for us, if we are to confess our sin, we must first know what, you know, what it is, and also that it's a terrible offense against God. And if we know how terrible it is, I'm sure we can't help but confess this to God. Second, uh, if we look at verse 4, David shows clearly that his sin is an offense against God. It says, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And he also recognizes that God alone is right in this. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Uh, for me in the past, I, I've thought particular things that I've done, maybe annoying my sister or uh, not listening to my parents, you know, those sorts of things. I thought, oh, it's, it's just small things, but actually each individual sin is not a small thing, but it matters, and it deeply matters to God. And thirdly, if we look at verses 5 to 6, we can see that David shows that his sin it stems from inside, from the very, very beginning, and from the innermost parts of who he is. Um, what he says here, what David says here, is something that I've, uh, I can I can think through and that speaks to me as well because for a long time uh, and even, even today as I've struggled with a particular sin uh, and that's kept me chained and kept me, kept me thinking that, oh, I, that has, help, has made me feel uh, a sense of sin and a sense of shame for years. And I thought, surely, as the more I struggled with it, the more um, I felt condemned in this prison of, of sin and shame. And I thought, surely, no one else can struggle with this as well. You know, I, like everyone else seems okay and everyone else seems good, but yeah, it, it felt so hard. Um, and so as a result, I refused to let people in and I was too ashamed to even admit it to God. But when I found out that other people struggled with this as well, um, I was surprised, I was shocked. I thought, how could this be? Maybe this is more commonplace. And so, as I thought about it more, I realized that 
um, actually, I'm not uniquely sinful, and nor are, nor are you as well. I think perhaps like me, you might have a particular sin that's kept you feeling chained and crushed. David's confession here shows you that you are not alone. You are not uniquely sinful. Your sin is not beyond God because He desires, He wants to reach deep into you all the way in. He, he, wants, to be le- he wants you to let Him into that secret place in your heart where you keep your deepest, darkest secrets because nothing is beyond what God can deal with. So with that, it's, it's pretty heavy. Let's recap a bit on what we've learned so far about uh, what God has been teaching us uh, in this psalm. And so I can think of three things first. Um, first thing is that confession begins as we turn our hearts back to God. Second is that confession requires us to know the offense of our sin to God. And third, that confession requires us to let God into our inmost parts. <clears throat> now, don't worry if you can't get this down or don't forget it. I've also got a diagram that I'll slowly add to as, the, as we go through this psalm. <clears throat> and it starts like this. We know that God is at the very center. He is the one that enables confession. And so the first stage in our journey of uh, confession is to actually know that God is in control of all this. He's, he's the one who makes this possible. And the first step is that we need to confess our sin to God. So we'll keep going. And as we go, uh, we'll go on to now point two, cleansed and changed. Now, having confessed his sin, David now expands on an earlier point in his prayer as he asks God to cleanse him of his sin. We read this in verse 7. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sin and blot out all my iniquity. David's sin, it has alienated him from God. It's it's removed him far away from God, making it seem like impossible for him to come before him, to come into his presence and to worship him. He understands now that the sin he had earlier convinced himself would give him some joy and some peace and that he deserved it was actually robbing that joy and peace that he had with God initially. He lies crushed under its weight. And it's only after God clears him of this sin that he can come before him again. So David asked for his sin to be cleansed, but that's not where it stops. David asks for more than just forgiveness. He wants to make sure he doesn't fall into the situation again. He wants God to come in and to change him from the inside out. And so, as we keep going, twice in verses 10 to 12, David asks God to move his very spirit, his very being, so that it faces back towards God. But separating this is this really interesting little bit in verse 11. He says, Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Now, if you've been going to church for a bit and if you've been a Christian for a while, this might seem a bit odd to you. How could God take His Holy Spirit away from you? If you've got God's Holy Spirit now, surely it could never be taken away. And you'd be right. Because ever since Jesus ascended into heaven, He had sent His, disciple, his Spirit upon His disciples 
ever since then, the Spirit has been given to anyone who believes. And so we actually read this uh, from Paul. In Ephesians, he says, When you believed, you were marked in Him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who was a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession, to the praise of His glory. In other words, the Spirit can never be taken away from you if you are a Christian, if you believe in Him. But if we go back to David's time, it wasn't always the case. Because David had seen how God had given his spirit to Saul, the previous king, and how he had taken it away and replaced it with an evil spirit that tormented him. David was the one who was playing the music to try to calm Saul down as well. We see in the Old Testament that when God gave his spirit, he gave it to particular people and for a particular purpose, to, uh, usually to key leaders so that they would enact His will uh, and that they would be in a close relationship with Him. And so, if you think about it this way, we can actually see the key point of what David is trying to say here. David didn't want to lose his access to God. He didn't want to lose this special, close relationship that he had with God. But he also wanted God's Spirit to properly guide him, to keep going, so that he could truly be someone who sought after God's heart. Because if the Spirit was gone, then how would he be able to find God again? And so this should be the key point for us. David saw that the only way for him to turn back to God, that is to repent, was to actually be changed by God himself. It's God who effectively changes David and us through his Spirit. So for us today... I think it's, it's such an immense privilege for us to have God's Spirit with us, to have God working in us. And as God works to align our whole being, to turn us back from sin back to Him, that is truly a joy. Unlike David who had to plead to God not to remove His Spirit from him, we know that we will definitely always have the Spirit as long, once we believe in Him. And that's a wonderful note of assurance to us all. But on the other hand, please don't take this as, a, as room for complacency. Because if you think that you don't need to put in any work to change, then, yeah, you'd be sorely mistaken. Instead, it's only because the Spirit enables us to change that we can change it all. Maybe I can put it this way. Imagine that you had a friend who had an incurable disease, something that um, would be with them for their whole life. But thanks to uh, previous doctors and other people that have worked hard on it, there's a, there's a cure for this as well. As long as they take their medication uh, regularly, and it's something that's available widely as well, then they should be fine. They should be able to manage this condition. But suppose one day your friend comes to you and says, you know what, I don't actually, I can't be bothered to take my medication anymore, and I'll just, I'll just wait and... If stuff happens, I know the doctors can save me anyway. You know, if, if you, I don't know how you would react, but I'd be, I'd be outraged. I'd be thinking, what? Someone has given you a really good path, and, and here you are just trampling on that. But actually, it's a good thing that God isn't like this, where he might get angry at you if you, if you relapse into sin. No. 
God welcomes us every single time when we come back and confess our sin and turn back to Him. But don't abuse His kindness. Consider Jesus' warning here. He says in Mark chapter 3, Truly I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins. That's an assurance. And every slander they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They're guilty of an eternal sin. What he's saying here is that if we take the Spirit for granted, then we'll never, like that, then we won't, we've just missed the point. Because confession and repentance from sin requires us to seek God and to commit to change. And it's good for us to remember that the whole process is possible because of who God is and what He has done. Earlier we learned a few things about how we uh, should confess our sin. Um, I'm going to modify this slightly now that we've um, heard a bit more from this psalm. And so we'll, this is how we'll change it a little bit. So firstly, as we turn our hearts back to God, we can know, we can be assured that we are cleansed from our sin. So that's, that's important. Second, knowing the offence of our sin to God, we commit to change. So knowing the offence of our sin to God, we commit to change. And third, since God dwells in our inmost parts, we know He will grow us. So these, are, these are words of assurance for us. We can also add two more steps to our journey of confession. So knowing that God is the one who's responsible, first, we confess our sin. Second, we know that we can come to Him and be cleansed for our sin. And third, we can be changed by a spirit. There's a few more things still to go. There's still a bit of this psalm to go. And so we'll continue now to our third and last point, confessing our sin in community. Now, amazingly, despite the extent of his sin, we know that David committed adultery and murder. David could still confidently declare in verse 13. He says, Then I will teach transgressors, that means sinners, those who have uh, done wrong. We, then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. I mean, that's crazy. How could he possibly say this? You know, he must be the biggest hypocrite in the world. Surely, like, how could he say that he could turn other people back when he's done such terrible sin? Well, the problem is that just like David might be a hypocrite, we, we are all hypocrites too. You know, that's why we have sayings like, do as I say, not as I do. Uh, I can think of one example uh, from my life. Sometimes when I'm in the shopping center at, at Bankstown and I'm waiting to get out of the car park, you know how at the car park there's a stop sign? And uh, if you, I've done my driving test there as well. And if you go past the stop sign and you don't stop, you fail straight away because that's against the law uh, and you're breaking the law. Um, but... When you're trying to get out of the car park, sometimes it's really it takes a long time because some people they're you know reversing or parking or just failing to park and taking a long time and and then the the line of cars is so long and you know sometimes the stop sign just becomes a giveaway sign or a you know a, yeah so yes uh, that's my confession for today um, <coughs> yeah so I mean yeah I'm a hypocrite. Um, you know, I, I tell other people, follow the traffic laws, don't jaywalk. And then sometimes when I'm really busy and, you know, I have to, yeah. So, I don't know, I was just, I'm a hypocrite. 
And uh, I'm sure you, if you think seriously about your life, that's, that's true as well. And I think that's the point as we grasp this. It's precisely because David himself is a sinner, because he's a hypocrite, if you will, that David can say that he will teach transgressors God's ways. He knows. He knows what it feels like to be trapped in sin. He knows what it's like to, because he, he wanted to, God to be far, far away. He didn't want to be close to God. And he knows what it's like in those deepest, darkest moments. So who else will be more qualified than he who has sinned greatly but received God's forgiveness and turned back to him? So just like David, we should also be ready to share our own stories, even though sometimes they might be deeply embarrassing uh, or, you know, just there's some wisdom in how we share our stories, but we should share our stories and we should share also from that what we've learnt uh, about God, the wonderful, wonderful grace that we've received. But here David doesn't just teach others, he also offers praise to God. And why wouldn't he? He's been freed from this prison of shame and sin that's been put over him. And so when we confess our sin, if we understand what God has done with it, we can't help but give God the praise He deserves. Now, we've come this far in our journey so far. We know that God is the one who's, uh, who makes this process of confession and repentance possible. We see that we confess our sin, we're cleansed by God and changed by Him. And, it, and uh, we know that we can also give thanks to Him. And you might think, all right, that's a good place to stop. But David still has one thing left. Because so far we've seen that God graciously blots out our sin. He changes our hearts to follow Him. But confessing our sin does not mean the consequences of our sin disappear. So that's important for us to remember. The consequences of our sin do not necessarily disappear. In David's case, his adultery with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband Uriah had devastating consequences that affected him for the rest of his life. The sexual sin that he had committed was multiplied and became far worse in his children's generation. You just need to read the next few chapters and you'll see. And also, uh, the murder of what he's what he did as well. The murders uh, amongst his own family over the next few chapters it just became worse and worse too. But we can understand this. David was 100% right. He was okay in the eyes of God. He was clean and he was being changed. But his sin still had devastating consequences. Perhaps you might have been moved to confess some sin that you're deeply ashamed of. Be assured that you will find forgiveness in God no matter what. You will be right before God. But also know that in this life, there might be legal, relational or other consequences to your sin too. Um, and that's just a part of the broken world that we live in. And so that's why David speaks about sacrifice to finish the psalm. The ancient Israelites, they were constantly reminded of the cost of their sin, the costliness of their sin. Every time they offered an animal sacrifice, they could see but over the years, people, they made that process into a ritual and actually perverted it. They, they used this to worship other gods. And we look at this and we think, wow, how could you, like, how could you do this, Israel? 
but we're not immune to this either. Because for us, I guess the equivalent is every week we sing songs that teach us and that, that we proclaim about what Jesus has done, how he has taken our sin upon him on the cross and taken it away. Every week as well, we usually confess our sin together and acknowledge the undeserved nature of our forgiveness. And every month, we celebrate the Lord's Supper, where we commemorate Jesus' body broken for us and His blood shed for us. These are beautiful things that we do together in community. But like the Israelites, we can forget and we can just simply go through the motions. Let us now hear these words from David. Verse 17, it says, My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. Perhaps you feel deeply burdened by your sin, wondering how it can ever be made right in God's sight. I want you to know, uh, time and time again, as we've been going through this psalm, you can be assured that in Jesus, all your sins, past, present, and future, have been forgiven and made right. But perhaps you might feel a bit uneasy about this sacrifice language as well. You might think, well, didn't Jesus sacrifice himself once for all time? So why should, why should I? Why should I present myself as a sacrifice for God? Well, the first thing to say is that we shouldn't take anything away from Jesus' sacrifice. As we've just said, it is, his sacrifice is fully sufficient to cover all our sin. But nor should we take his sacrifice for granted and slide into complacency. I hope this language of sacrifice here, which seems a bit weird for some of us that have grown up in this culture, but it might be more uh, accessible for us if we've grown up in other contexts. This language of sacrifice, it should help us to come humbly before God daily as we confess and repent from our sin. Rather than making us feel defeated, it should help us come before God with contrition, with this contrite heart in line with the work of His Holy Spirit. Now, the last two verses here they seem a bit weird too, but they hold an important clue and a final clue that can help us uh, think through this concept of contrition or humility before God. Because although they talk about Israel's sacrificial system, they look forward to a far better reality of a reform system looks forward to a new Jerusalem and a new system where God gladly accepts sacrifice. Today, we already have the great privilege of coming together before God anytime in prayer. Anytime that we want, we can come to Him and freely confess our sin, knowing that He has forgiven us. But it's got nothing on the new creation. Earlier, Pete read uh, words from Revelation uh, for us as well. That is the day that I'm longing for, that day when we can see God face to face when He wipes every tear from our eyes when there will be no more sin. That's the day I'm looking forward to. And I think that's the day that David is looking forward to as he, as he writes in this psalm too. But until that happens, as we continue to struggle with sin now, let us continue to come humbly before God and to remember that we, we need Him. And as we need Him, we... We cling to Him as well, and we long for that final amazing day. And so as we conclude our journey through the psalm, let us recap one last time the three things we can learn as we confess our sin. I've highlighted the bits we've looked at earlier. I'm just adding one more thing. So first, 
as we turn our hearts back to God, we can be assured that we are cleansed from our sin and give all praise to God. Second, knowing the offence of our sin to God, we commit to change and we do this in community with each other. Third, since God dwells even in our inmost parts, we know He will grow us and so we continually offer ourselves before Him. So those are three things I think that um, we can be learning that David uh, has been showing us from this psalm. Or to put it another way, uh, as we've gone on this journey through psalms, we can see now this complete diagram. We know that God is the one in the center, and so as we confess our sin, He cleanses us, He changes us by His Spirit. We know that even though we've been cleansed and changed, there are consequences in this life. But we continue to come with a humble, contrite heart in contrition before God. And as we continue to live, we, we will sin. And so this will continue to propel us to keep coming before Him, keep coming before God, and to keep growing in our relationship with Him. We're now going to spend some time applying what we've learned today uh, in corporate confession, in song, and in reflection. But before we do that, let's join again uh, in prayer. Let's come before God. Almighty and sovereign Lord God, have mercy on us. You are right in your judgments, merciful in your forgiveness, worthy of all our praise. Please free us from the prison of shame that our sin has bound us in. Help us not to fall into complacency and continue to renew our hearts by your Spirit. Fix our eyes ever always upon you, and until we get to see you face to face, may we remember your love so amazing, so divine, that it demands our soul, our life, and our all. We pray this in your Son's name. Amen.